Again you have heard, it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply, yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sunrise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. As we encounter perfection, two things happen. Our own inadequacy is exposed, and the true standard is revealed. Now, I don't know if you watched Brazil play South Korea last evening. I caught just the tail end of it, and I know there's some debate about the Brazilians' dancing skills. I'm not an expert in the Brazilian football team, as was pointed out to me yesterday evening by a 17-year-old, but the pundits on the ITV did think they were watching perfection, and even the BBC have brilliant Brazil, and Brazil put down the biggest marker. And when we do encounter perfection, two things happen. Our own inadequacy is exposed, as South Korea discovered, and a true standard is revealed. And over the last few weeks, we've had Jesus expounding the law for us, morality and ethics, and we have encountered true perfection. We've noticed that Jesus does not lower the bar, Jesus meets it, he teaches us what the law of God truly means, and he shows us which part of the moral law of God are for us and which part have been completed by him, and he details the depths of the true meaning of the law of God, and not only does he expound the law of God, he also perfectly keeps the moral law of God. We've also seen that Jesus does not dilute the law. He concentrates it time and time again. We find ourselves saying, do you know, I would never have reached that conclusion on the face of it if all I had was the Ten Commandments. But now that I hear Jesus expounding the law, well, that is what it really means. And the backdrop to Jesus' teaching have been the Pharisees. So if you just flick back a page, you'll see verse 20, where Jesus says, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's, if you like, summed up for us in verse 48 at the other side of this exposition of the law, where Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So in the background, we've got the teaching that the disciples and the crowds had been hearing from the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus is saying is altogether inadequate. That kind of tick box religion, that kind of loophole religion says, oh, well, here it is, and I've done this, I've done that, I've done that, and I've guarded, if you like, the law and made it possible for me to achieve. Two things then are happening here. We're being shown perfection. This is what God really demands, and we're being shown ourselves. This is how far short we fall. And the aim of Jesus in this part of the Sermon on the Mount is to drive us back to him. You remember the opening words of the sermon. Blessed are those who are poor. That is those who are spiritually poor, the poor in spirit who recognize their own need of forgiveness. And the aim is to cause disciples who follow Jesus today, not only to go back to Jesus, but also to see the perfect demands and now with the enabling of Jesus to seek to live them. Now, two weeks ago, we dealt with murder. There is to be no hatred in our hearts. And last week, lust and adultery. There is to be no lust in our looks and no allowance for adultery. I've been looking at these passages with a smaller group of people on a Monday afternoon and repeatedly saying, hands up, those of us who have not committed murder, and every hand goes up. And then we look at the teaching of Jesus, hands up, those of us who have not committed murder in our hearts, and not a hand goes up. This week, three more areas where we might think that we really know a thing or two and are in the clear. Integrity, rights, and love. Integrity, there is to be no lying on our lips. And here we're looking at verse 33 through 37. Are we say, integrity, in utmost good faith, my word is my bond, I'm all right, really? So verse 33, again you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And the quote Jesus makes in verse 33 isn't a direct quote from any Old Testament passage. It's more of a compilation, and I've jotted down some references for you there on the handout. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. The point is simple enough. Any vow we make to God is made before God. He is the creator and Lord of the universe. To make a promise casually or lightly is to treat him with contempt. To treat with contempt the Lord of the universe is contemptible. 
More than that, it's disqualifying. You'll notice throughout the sermon, Jesus says things like, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this impacts, of course, immediately the way we pray, how we pray, what we sing, whether we mean it, what we promise to God. How many have made promises to God in the moment of acute crisis, and once the peril passes, the promise is left by the wayside? But in verses 34 through 36, Jesus moves from our specific promises to God to more general use of vows and oaths. So, verse 34, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Now, we need to be clear that Jesus cannot be suggesting that no oath or promise should ever be made. God himself makes promises in the Bible and keeps them. The Apostle Paul makes vows to God. Rather, this is a critique of the particular culture of Jesus' day where the Pharisees and scribes had created a catalogue of formulae by which the weightiness and therefore the binding nature of any contract or agreement could be measured. And Jesus speaks directly to this in Matthew chapter 26, where he says, "'Woe to you, blind guides, who say, "'If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, "'but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, "'well, then he's bound by his oath. "'Or if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, "'but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, "'he is bound by his oath.'" It seems then that the Pharisees of Jesus' day had erected scaffolding around the construct of plain words such that it could be determined whether a person really was bound by what they said, dependent on the precise form of the words used. I wonder if that sounds familiar. There was an entire industry devoted to it. Those who could afford the necessary legal support would be able to run rings about, around the poor unfortunates who were not sufficiently expert. You can see that reflected in what Jesus says here in the sermon, verse 34. Do not take an, an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's its footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Oh yeah, I swear, but I really swear by heaven. I swear, but I really swear by Jerusalem on my mother's grave, or whatever it happens to be. But Jesus' point is, look, every word we utter is uttered in the sight of God. He hears, he knows. He sees, he cares. We either mean it or we don't. Our words matter, and our use of words speak volumes about us. It seems to me this has so much to say to us in the city, and how we view the culture of the city in which we operate. What about the get-out clause in so many legal agreements or insurance contracts? Uh, indeed, there's a whole industry out there feeding off the wriggle room in words. And as one individual put to me yesterday, 
a lot of lawyers have gotten very rich on it. Now, he was a banker, and so I did point out to him that maybe the banking industry is not entirely in the clear. But you see, our use of words speaks volumes about us as a culture. And the living God who made us will judge us. And the weightiness of every word counts. And so as we make a promise on my mother's grave or by Mother Mary and the saints above or on the life of my child or on pain of death, it's actually telling us a great deal about ourselves. Why do we need to do that? What does it tell us about the culture in which we currently operate? Now, verse 37 then puts it in its starkest form. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more of than this comes from the evil one. In other words, there are only two sides. Ultimately, in the business of truth, there is either truth or lies. There is the God of the Bible, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is absolutely true. He never lies. Every syllable of his word is pure, trustworthy, crystal clear, and absolute. And then there's Satan. He's the father of lies and obfuscation and distortion. He is the great deceiver. So all half-truth or white lies or deliberate dissimulation or deceit, well, where does it come from? And that we live in a culture where we have to cloak our words in so many subclauses. I mean, what does that tell us about the city, ourselves? Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Exaggeration, embellishment, omission, Dilution, straight lying. Oh, he's out of the office. She's on a business trip. It comes from the evil one. And the very fact that we have to have subclauses and footnotes and small print and force majeure or whatever it happens to be dressed up in such very wonderful language tells us a great deal about the culture Well, now, in verses 33 to 37, we deal with integrity. There's to be no lying on your lips. These headings, lying on your lips and resting on my rights, I have to say, are stolen. They weren't mine. I just have always thought they were rather good. I heard them about 26 or 7 years ago and have used them repeatedly ever since. But verse 38 through 42 has to do with resting on our rights. And once again, in a culture where it seems that everybody is expounding entitlement and rights. These verses tell us a great deal about ourselves. So the Old Testament quote there in verse 38, you can find in the different references I've put down on the sheet for you. And the purpose of the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, in its original construct set text is to, res re to restrict from excessive retaliation and to keep matters judicial rather than personal. It's known as lex talonis, the punishment must fit the crime. And the statement, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, 
is a legal statement designed to prevent vengeance. There are to be no blood feuds, no peaky, blinder behavior. I damage your car, your brothers come and down my house, I summon my wider family, we slaughter your next of kin. No, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, no more. And the first line of Jesus' response is a summary, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And then we have four worked examples, which we won't have time for all of them. But already from verse 39, we can feel it, can't, can't we? You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So what is the character of God? He knows no personal vendetta. So how are we to behave? The point is not to resist the one who is evil with regards to personal rights and wrongs. This is personal justice matters. Some have taken it as a foundation for a state's response to wickedness and used it to form the foundation of much pacifism. But the New Testament teaches that the state is given the power of the sword to restrict evil. Jesus told us to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. He never rebukes soldiers for being soldiers or police officers for being police officers. And in Romans 12, where Paul argues, vengeance is mine, I will repay, Paul then follows it with an exposition of the role of the state in bringing about justice. So what I think is going on here and in then the four examples is to deal with the personal attitude of our heart when it comes to us being wronged and not, if you like, the legal process of the state. The point is to prevent personal vengeance, to forbid individual vendettas. At every point, whenever possible, the Christian man or woman is to withdraw themselves from personal vengeance so far as they are able, not to get on their high horse, to be prepared to forego our rights, to seek peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. We should not insist on our entitlements. Now, the opening statement then is, as I've said, followed by four examples. And the first one is, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The slap refers not to a physical assault, but to the highest insult. A backhanded slap to the face was an expression of the greatest contempt. And in the first century, it was punishable by a considerable fine. The same word slap is used of the treatment of Jesus at the crucifixion. They came up to him and slapped him in the face. Who did it? Prophesy. They spat on him. And again, in the world of Facebook insults, comments on Twitter, gossip columns, and Snapchat, this could not be more relevant. In the area of insult and abuse, in the world of office politics and boardroom bust-ups, gossip and banter, don't escalate. Don't simmer, don't begrudge, don't concoct biting responses for use next time round. 
There is, of course, tremendous suggestion here and evidence that all of this is in the light of Jesus' comment that his disciples will face personal persecution for following him. Don't fight back. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The purpose of that was to restrict retaliation. But if that was the purpose of it, what was the intent behind it? Let it drop. One really important caveat. What about an an abused wife, husband, child? Is she then duty-bound simply to turn the other cheek? No, this is about insult here. It's in the context of the law, and there is a law. And the state, we're glad to say, has ruled on such things. And therefore, the abused wife, husband, child in the home is quite right to act under the law. Well, in verses 40, 41, and 42, we follow this principle through with property and possessions, with energy, time, and money. And as we ponder these, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. As we ponder these, you know, over the years, I've seen Christians act on these verses to very considerable personal cost. Disputes with builders dropped. Disagreements over contracts put aside. I don't think it's suggesting that an individual will never end up in court with a neighbor. It does temper dramatically the attitude with which any dispute is approached. Might there be something bigger and better to be gained than that particular petty principle under dispute. The soldier in an undefeated, sorry, the soldier in a defeated nation under military occupation had extraordinary power. He really could force you to go with him and help in whatever way he demanded. And you may feel that in the 21st century labor market here in the city, we are in very similar circumstances. There will be many examples of individuals being asked to perform unreasonable tasks with inappropriate level of remuneration. What an opportunity for radically different principles to be on display. Ah, says somebody, this is totally impossible. Really? Since Jesus was in very nature God, He did not consider equality with God something to be exploited for his own end. He made himself nothing. He took on the form of a slave. Being found in human form, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here is perfection. This is our God. He exposes our failure. We're driven back to Jesus for forgiveness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And as we come to Jesus' forgiveness in the failure of our tongue, our integrity, and in the failure of our heart, I must have my rights. We look at Jesus. We're washed clean. We're strengthened to get up 
and seek to pursue perfection. Now, we haven't got time for the last one, verse 43 to 48. It's very similar. And as I was chatting to somebody immediately before this meeting, uh, they said to me, oh, are we in for another real beat-up? And there's a temptation, isn't there, that we read this perfection and we kind of think, oh, yeah, yeah, we fail. We all know that. And slightly to kind of, I say laugh it off, but perhaps shrug it off. Yeah, we're useless. What James tells us in his letter that we are to weep and mourn over our sin. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So I think the intention is not that we simply say, yeah, we're useless and shrug it off. But we recognize what we're truly like. We stop putting on a pretense, oh, the city is so full of integrity. No, it isn't. You wouldn't have contracts the way you had written if the city was not evil. That's why you have to write the contracts the way you do. Because we are evil, says Jesus. Mourn over it. Come to Jesus. Seek forgiveness. But then having seen perfection and been washed clean, pursue perfection. Be perfect. And so it's beautiful, the teaching of Jesus. It's not this is perfection, oh, we better hedge round it to try and show how good we are. That's the morality of the Pharisee. It's this is our God. We are exposed. Come to him for forgiveness. And now with his help, seek to pursue perfection. It's beautiful. Perfection upheld the bar met for us, and then us washed clean and enabled to pursue righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you. We wonder in awe at the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he fulfills your moral law not only keeping it himself, but also showing us what it truly means. We thank you, our Father, that you are so good, divinely perfect. We confess our sin. We mourn over our dishonesty and the lack of integrity that pervades every part of the city. We pray that people might come to Jesus and seek forgiveness and a fresh start. In Jesus' name, amen.